Would you turn with me to Job chapter 1? Job chapter 1, it's right before the book of Psalms, just before the center of your Bible. And in Job chapter 1, I'd like to direct your attention to verse 20 and verse 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you this morning running to the portion of Scripture that comforts our souls, running to this part of the Bible that was placed here in your divine providence for moments such as these. And so we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open the warmth of your word to find the solace and the help that we need in the darkest and most difficult moments of our lives. And Lord, we pray that the word of God this morning would be powerful, that it would be alive and active as as has been promised in the book of Hebrews. It would be as a two-edged sword which would divide our thoughts, our intentions, and would cut to the deepest portions of our hearts. Might Jesus Christ be honored, might the gospel be proclaimed, and might every heart here be encouraged by the God who has made us, the God who gives, the God who takes away, the God to whom we only must say, blessed be the name of the Lord. It is in the name of Christ we pray this morning. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day on Sunday, April 29th, we once again enjoyed the thrill and the honor of gathering together to worship. We worship Christ in response to his graciousness, his kindness, the salvation that he's given us through his death and through his resurrection. We began a short mini-series concerning a healthy church. And one of the points that we discussed one week ago this morning was the fact that no one is guaranteed any amount of time on this earth. In fact, I believe the phrase that I used is that in 10 minutes, you could be facing God. That we're called to be excellent church members now because we could face the Lord at any time. And for our dear sister in Christ, Jane Mulligan, that came true that very evening. Just minutes after the close of our evening service, she entered into the presence of the Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we grieve for ourselves. We grieve especially for Jane's family. And we're thankful to have gotten to spend some time with you as well. Now, every time something hard and painful happens in our congregation, I can't stop my preaching plan to address this. Otherwise, we would just talk about pain 52 Sundays a year. But sometimes I think the duty of the shepherd is to give expression to our grief. And the fact that so many of us have been talking to Jane and hugging her and little kids holding hands with her and saying goodbye to her and then 100 yards from this spot to see her go home to the Lord in a horrible accident. I think sometimes you just have to stop 
And we need to let the scriptures give a voice to our anguish, to instruct us, to comfort us. It was such a joy to see some of you running to be with Jane just moments after the accident. Literally, her her car just came to a stop and going to her and praying with her and speaking words of comfort to her in her final moments. And as the reality of emergency vehicles and medical technicians and police officers began to sink in, many, many of us wept together and we gathered and we prayed. Many of you jumped to your cars going to the hospital. I think we took half the parking lot there hoping beyond hope that maybe they could save dear Jane. And at the hospital, we we prayed for Jane's family. We hurt so badly for you, family that she'd often boasted in and loved and cherished. And so the homegoing of Jane Mulligan was more direct and in our face, so to speak, than maybe um, happens at other times. And so in this particular circumstance, I feel I ought to speak to you and Let us be together in this time and give a voice to our sorrow. And today, just for once, uh, we've we've kept Jane's seat for her right there, that bouquet of flowers. That's always where she sat. And heaven help the person who tried to sit where Jane's going to sit because that was her seat. And so we, we give it to her one more time in honor of her. But today I want to talk to you about God's help for grief. God's help for grief. And my purpose is not to focus on Jane so much. Her memorial service yesterday served that function, but I would like to mention a couple of things. I preached last Sunday morning on being an excellent church member. And in my sermon preparation, more than once I thought about Jane. I thought about her because she never complained. She was continually expressing gratitude for the preached word of God. She loved what we're doing right now. For the songs that we sing, she loved the body of Christ. For all her many ways, she served the Lord in the church. We had our leadership meeting Monday night. We took a poll. Did anybody ever hear Jane complain about anything? No. I was so thankful that in God's providence, our family sat with Jane for several hours last Saturday at the wedding reception. We got to speak of the Lord and the joy that we have in each other's fellowship and company. And so that was an extra privilege And so my purpose today is not to focus on Jane. I will say this. She modeled love for Christ and she modeled a deep yearning to obey him in all respects. And we can take a page from her book in that. She had no illusions of her own righteousness. She viewed herself as a wretched sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. As I often spoke with her more often than not, she didn't want to speak about mundane things. She wanted to speak about the word of God and about Christ. And and she would grab my hand and say, thank you for that sermon. I needed that. I love the word of God. And you could just see the excitement on her face. In fact, the last personal conversation I had with her, she spoke of being overjoyed at the forgiveness that was hers in Christ. Well, what do we do, those of us who are left? God placed a man in our Bible for a time such as this, a place for us to run to and to find help And grace in time of need, and that man is named Job. He's an extremely wealthy man in the ancient Near East. And Job is very unique in Scripture because we have in the book of Job, the book about Job, a rare behind-the-scenes look at a meeting that happens in heaven which tells us the real story behind the sovereign actions of God on earth. The book of Job tells us the true story of a challenge that's made by Satan, the evil one, the wicked one, toward God. 
Satan accuses God of keeping worshipers only because God blesses them and gives them good things. In fact, the original believer in the prosperity gospel is Satan. Satan demonstrates he believes in the prosperity gospel that God exists to create followers by pouring material blessing on them. And so Satan's challenge, his assertion to God is that no man in his right mind would continue to worship God if his life was destroyed and decimated. Nobody would do that. Now, this situation that's set up here in the book of Job, this is not God responding to anything in reality. God is always the proactive one. He's always the sovereign one. And in his sovereign will, he allowed and in fact orchestrated Satan making this challenge. And guess who gets to be the test subject to prove God's point? God himself said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't ever want God to say those words about me to Satan. I just want to fly under the radar. But you know what Satan believes? Look with me at verse 11. This is what he believes. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And so God releases Satan to do precisely and only precisely what God allows. No wicked thing ever happens outside the control of God. God never touches sin. He never touches unrighteousness. He never does anything impure. He allows the one who is impure to do that only within his boundaries and for his purposes. And Satan, fully believing that he can turn a true worshiper of God away from God with terrible tragedy, he just unleashes pain into the life of Job. And so the question of the book of Job is, would Job forsake God? Would he turn away from God when his fortunes had changed, when God didn't follow Job's will? And so we come upon Job, and in one day, he receives four rapid-fire visits from messengers. Look with me at verse 13. Messenger number one. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. There's a second messenger, verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Messenger number three, verse 17. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And messenger number four, Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, and we might insert, no, Lord, anything but this, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So the Sabaean raiders fell upon the animals and the servants. Fire fell from heaven and burned up more animals and servants. The Chaldeans fell upon the rest of the animals and the servants. And a house fell upon his children, killing all of them. His wealth is gone. His beloved children are gone. This is an emotional blow that is absolutely impossible to quantify. And the loss of literally everything in your life, you can't calculate that. 
So what did Job do? How did he respond? What was his instinct as a man who had trusted the true and living God for so many, many years? Well, very simply, he did two things. First, he grieved his loss. And second, he worshiped his God. He grieved his loss and he worshiped his God. His first response is that he grieved his loss. And in this grief, we see three events. Three events. First, he expressed his sorrow with a physical act. He expressed his sorrow with a physical act. Now, Job was an extremely wealthy man. He was respected. He was well-known. He would no longer be running the day-to-day operations of his business. And as an older man and one who worshiped the Lord and lived a life of wisdom, he would be in the gates of the city, the gates of the town, with the other elders. He would be giving instruction, imparting wisdom, even making decisions as a judge, so to speak. But now, verse 20 says, Job arose. And not only did he respond physically by by getting to his feet, he immediately stopped everything he was doing. Nothing else mattered at that moment. Ecclesiastes 3 famously says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. For Job, this is a time to weep. This is a time to mourn. He didn't try to over-spiritualize this event. He didn't try to spin it as something positive. He didn't say something trite. He didn't say, oh, well, God is sovereign. He simply let the pain wash over him. As he stopped what he was doing, the business of the day was over. As a matter of fact, later on in chapter 2, we see Job's friends coming, and all they did with him was sit on the ground with him for a week just to be with him in his grief. How deep was Job's grief? In chapter 3, Job curses the day that he was born. Chapter 3, verse 11, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? And his, his grief is so intense at first that the only emotional comfort he has in that moment is to, is to wonder what it would have been like to just have died immediately and just to have avoided all of this. He even says that if he had died immediately at birth, he would have gone to the kings and the princes of the earth and he would have been saved all the trouble of living only to suffer the loss of everything that he had. In other words, he has an implicit question. It's not necessarily a sinful question, just a reasonable question. It's if God's plan was for 70 years to make me massively wealthy, to give me a family of 10 children, to give me hundreds of servants, thousands of animals, an estate, a business, a a, a reputation as an elder of the community, and then he's just going to take it all away. Why didn't he just skip all that in between and kill me the day I was born? That would have made more sense. How deep and profound was his grief. And Sunday evening, we saw the physical responses to our shock and our sorrow. Many of you wept. Some of you wept loudly. Many of you sat down in shock. Others of you stood up and paced in sadness. Many of you embraced one another. Grief of this magnitude, it demands a response. It demands expression. It's grief that Jesus expressed at the tomb of Lazarus when he wept, a word that means deep sobs of sorrow. This is the human response to events we instinctively know ought not to happen. 
Death is not natural. It's unnatural. It's terrible. It's not part of a beautiful cycle of life. It's part of a horrific cycle of death. The result of living in a cursed and sinful world in bodies that start dying when we're 18 years old. Death is not okay. Death is not good. But Job grieved far beyond just his instinct to stand and likely to weep. There's a second event as he grieved his loss. He put himself in his proper place. He put himself in his proper place. Verse 20 says that Job arose and tore his robe. This was a sign of mourning that's seen other times in Scripture. But remember that Job was a respected elder in his community. And the robe that's spoken of here is a specific type of robe. It's a a long sleeveless outer garment that's worn as a symbol of authority. It's worn by men of standing and rank, such as a high priest or a judge even. And so the robe that he was wearing was in essence a, a uniform of respect, a uniform of authority. And by tearing his robe of authority, Job isn't just having some sort of emotional breakdown. This isn't just a, a fit of some kind where he wildly rips his clothes apart. This is a specific statement. He's saying that he's undone. He is demoted. He's reduced. He's lowered. He's humbled. He is nothing. In other words, the things that gave him rank in his culture, a large respected family, massive wealth and success, all of those things are gone and now he is reduced to only himself. He's making the statement that he's been cut back to what he actually is, just a feeble, frail man completely at the mercy of God. As a matter of fact, as he grieves, he not only expresses his grief with a physical act and puts himself in his proper place, there's a third event. He puts God in his proper place. He puts God in his proper place. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. Now, it may be possible that the first two that he arose and he tore his robe happened immediately, but the shaving of the head would take some time to accomplish this. This wasn't just a spontaneous emotional tantrum of some sort in response to sorrow. He didn't just stand up, tear his robe, and rip his hair out. This is going home and taking the time to shave his head. Part of the expression of his grief is to acknowledge God as all-powerful, as all-controlling, a bigger than a God bigger than Job can possibly handle. Why is the shaving of his head a symbol of putting God in his place. Well, hair has been given in the Bible as a covering by God. For example, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen that a woman's hair is given to her for a covering and he calls her hair her glory. It's a, a rightful area of human self-respect and dignity. But in a time of great loss, one might shave the head as an expression of mourning. But it wasn't just a a meaningless expression. It had a message. It had a tune. It had a reason. It had a meaning behind it. It's saying, I'm uncovered. I'm exposed. I'm weak. I'm vulnerable. I'm defeated. I'm naked. As a matter of fact, the shaved head in the Bible symbolized complete devastation by an enemy. That you've been bested by somebody who's bigger and stronger and more powerful than you are Isaiah 7 verse 20 speaks of God's impending judgment on his own people because of their disobedience. And he's going to use the empire of Assyria. 
And in Isaiah 7.20, it says that God will shave with a razor the head and the beard all the way down to the feet. This is a picture of a totally shaved body as defeated and subjugated. You see, when Job went home and shaved his head, he admitted that he had just been vanquished by God himself. I've been defeated. I've been undone. In Job 10, verse 16, Job says that God has hunted him like a a lion hunts its prey. The very next verse, he says, you bring an army against me. You've brought fresh troops. In other words, in shaving his head, Job surrenders. He waves the white flag. He says, God is great. I am not. I admit my defeat at the hands of an almighty God. I don't know about you, but this evokes a lot of emotion for me. Job grieved by expressing his sorrow in a physical act. He grieved by putting himself as the lowest of the low, and he grieved by putting God as the highest of the high. But I do want you to notice what Job did not do. He did not give in to uncontrollable fits of rage or anger, and he certainly didn't blame God. The first response of Job, he grieved his loss. The second response, he worshiped his God. He worshiped his God. And how did he worship? The same way he grieved, with three events. The first event in Job's worship of God, he expressed his worship with a physical act. He expressed his worship with a physical act. Verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Do you notice the poetic symmetry that Job arose in his grief to grieve and then he fell on the ground to worship? This is a word which means specifically, it's a worship word. It's not just like I fell down by accident. It's a word that means to put your body on the ground to show that you are inferior and in the presence of a superior, someone greater than yourself. And you see the irony here, what had just happened to Job, the Sabaean raiders fell upon his animals and servants. Fire fell from heaven and burned up more animals and servants. The Chaldeans fell upon the rest of his animals. A house fell upon his children, killing all of them. And in an expression of worship, Job fell onto the ground to worship God. And the lesson is clear. If all that is precious to you falls, your only response is to fall as well in worship. But listen, don't just take this as an emotional response of falling in a heap on the ground because of profound sorrow. That's not what this is. That sort of falling on the ground is involuntary. This is something that he prepared to do. He got ready to do. This falling on the ground is an act of discipline. It's the act of one who defaults to worship even in the worst of circumstances. And when it says here that he fell on the ground... This is a particular and important Hebrew verb form that's doing something with the story. It's a verb form that says, this is a key moment. This is a major continuing part of the story. This is the point of this whole section. And it's not a passive verb. It's not that Job can't help himself. It's an active verb, meaning that Job made a conscious decision to fall before the Lord. He had taken the time to shave his head, And after he did that, he didn't shake his fist at God. He didn't run from God. He made a conscious decision to respond to this tragedy by physically getting on his face before God. Not a bad practice. And in fact, 
That same verb form most often means to do something repeatedly, to get on the ground over and over and over again. So the picture we have is not just Job falling involuntarily to the ground. It is him shaving his head and preparing himself and coming and kneeling on the ground and laying before God and worshiping him and then standing up again and then getting down and laying before God and worshiping him and then standing up again and laying before God and worshiping him. How many times did he do that? I don't know. The text doesn't say if I were guessing, I would say four times. Once for every time he was fallen upon. And just like the grief he expressed, there's a second event as he worshiped his God. He put himself in his proper place. He put himself in this proper place. In verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Now, obviously, he's not saying he'll return to his mother's womb. It's an expression in which he's articulating that he entered the world completely powerless, and he'll leave the world the same way, completely powerless. This is what the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. In fact, in the previous verse, the writer says simply that the Lord knows that we are dust. What does that mean? You're gone. Job doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't say, do you know who I am? He doesn't say, how could you do this to precious me? Don't you know I'm the most special person in the universe? He acknowledges that God is simply returning Job to the state in which he came into the world with absolutely nothing. And in his worship, he now performs a third event. He puts God in his place. We have in this text one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible concerning the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God says that God does what he pleases, when he pleases, to whom he pleases, how he pleases, and for whatever reason that please him. Listen, the book of Job might be expressed with one word, and that word is why. This is the cry that we have in the face of tragedy. And in the course of this entire book, Job is never told why. He never knows about chapter one, the meeting and the conversation between God and Satan. But in this great and powerful statement of the sovereignty of God, Job gives one of the greatest foundational doctrines of the entire Bible. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed, meaning worthy at all times, highest at all times, greatest at all times, Blessed be the name of the Lord, that it is his right to give. It is his right to take away. It is his right to give life. It is his right to take life. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot do wrong. God is utterly pure, always perfect, without any stain, any blemish. And so Job's only response can be that whatever God does is always the right thing. And God, in fact, does not obligate himself to explain anything to anyone. He's not obligated to do that. And the commentary on the response of Job is nothing short of astounding. Verse 22, look at this with me. Learn this lesson, know this well. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
And in that short verse, Job just gave us the spiritual goals that we're to have in the midst of grief. He gave us our application. He helps us in God's help for grief. Two goals that Job just outlined here. Goal number one, respond in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Respond in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Job sorrowed and he grieved profoundly, but he didn't get angry. He didn't pout. He didn't sin against others. He didn't take his pain out on those around him. He responded in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And listen, that's why the trials come for many of you. How will you respond? And there's a second goal. Run to God and not away from him. Run to God and not away from him. Let the, the very one who allowed this pain and the sovereignty be the one who comforts you in the midst of it. And, and we have an example of this in Scripture that when King David sinned horribly in adultery and in murder, the Lord disciplined him hard. God took the life of the baby that was born of that affair. And in David's great confession of Psalm 51, David looks to the very God who righteously caused the pain in the first place for the comfort that he needs to get through it. He says in Psalm 51, verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. James chapter 1 exhorts those in pain to not waste the pain, to use it for a spiritual purpose. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And here's our, here's our application. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, making you more and more like Christ. Those are our two spiritual goals in the midst of tragedy. Respond in the way that's pleasing to the Lord. Run to God and not away from him. Now, I could close right now. I could say, well, that's our lesson. Grieve and worship God and respond well. I don't know about you, but I want to say, is that it? Is that it? Is that all there is? That God destroys something in our lives and we say, okay, I grieve, I worship you, I'll try to do good. No, I think that would fall flat. That's not enough. That is not enough. Listen, I'm, I'm tempted to take you to the end of the book of Job in which God restores Job's fortunes double and there's a wonderful happy ending, but I'm not going to go there because in this life, God may not restore our fortunes. We can't bring Jane back. There are certain losses which will be losses for the rest of our lives. So what was Job's hope? Remembering that he had no idea that God would restore him. He had no idea. As far as he was concerned, his life was essentially over. And we saw this a few weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday, but I want to look ahead a few chapters to the hope that Job has. Turn with me to Job chapter 19. In Job 19, we see Job's true hope that which gives him perspective that only a worshiper of God can have. And in Job 19, verses 25 and 26, there are three just massive anchors of hope that Job has. Three massive anchors of hope. First, he hopes in a living Redeemer. He hopes in a living Redeemer. Job 19, verse 25, "'For I know that my Redeemer lives.'" A redeemer is someone who buys something back. He's a deliverer. It's the idea in the Bible of a close relative who comes to your rescue. His hope is that God will redeem him. And this is personal redemption. 
Job knows that on his own he's inadequate. And so in this ancient text, Job gives prophetically a basic understanding that God must purchase him. Of course, the New Testament develops this fully. In the New Testament, we meet the Redeemer. He is the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, who would redeem, buy back all who would trust in him. What is it that Jesus is redeeming? He's purchasing your freedom from the rightful wrath of God against every sin you've ever committed. Do you understand that according to Revelation 20, you will stand before God and you will hear read every wicked thought, every wicked word, every wicked wicked deed you've ever committed. You will hear those read unless Jesus Christ has redeemed you. And then when your name is called, it will simply be, He lived a perfect life. Well, wait a minute. No, I didn't. But Christ lived it for him. Well, the penalty for a sin has been paid. Well, wait a minute. But I haven't died for all eternity. I haven't been sent to hell. That's right. Because Christ did that for you. So he hopes in a living redeemer. Second massive anchor of hope that Job has, he hopes in a future kingdom. He hopes in a future kingdom. The second half of verse 25, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Now, how do we get a future kingdom from this? Well, we simply put the puzzle pieces together. First of all, at the last, it's a word that means at the end of all things, that's the future. Second, he is the redeemer. And third, he is on the earth. If God is on the earth in person, who else is going to be in charge? He's going to be the king. And fourth, we can cheat and go to the New Testament And see that in Revelation 20, we learn that Jesus Christ will reign on the earth. He'll get warmed up for eternity with a thousand-year age of rule in which righteousness and purity wins the day on earth because of his presence. But you might say, well, Job's going to be long dead. Why does this give Job hope? Because the third massive anchor of hope he has is that he hopes in personal resurrection. He hopes in personal resurrection. Verse 26 And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. When he says my skin has been destroyed, this is a cultural phrase to mean his own death, the decomposition of his body. That somehow, after the decomposition of his body, in his body, he will see God. This is one of the earliest proclamations in the Bible of the doctrine of personal resurrection, which is exactly what the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, promised. John chapter 11 records the death of Lazarus, the very good friend of Jesus. And Jesus made a declaration to Martha, who was Lazarus' sister. He said in John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And listen to this. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus, at the death of Lazarus, he did two things. And see if they sound familiar. First, he grieved his loss. John 11.35 records that Jesus wept. But the loss for Jesus as God, as the very Son of God, wasn't so much just Lazarus, because he knew what he was about to do. But it's the fact that sin has brought death into the world, that every single human being in all of history is a Lazarus. Every one of us will die. Every one of us will. Unless God intervenes. And the second thing that Jesus did, first he grieved his loss, second he worshiped his God. Not as an inferior does to a superior, 
but as God the Son to God the Father. And this isn't hard for us to understand. There's four places in the New Testament where we see Jesus singing songs of praise to his Father. And so in John 11, verse 41, in this time of sadness and sorrow, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He worshiped him. And so Jesus grieved his loss and he worshiped his God. But he has something that we don't have. He has the solution to the problem. He just claimed that he would raise up all who belong to him and what better way to prove that ability than to give a demonstration. And after he finished praying, John eleven forty three and 44 records, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a perfect, beautiful illustration of Jesus Christ saying to our souls, unbind him, let him go from the destruction of sin. Now, if you think that was a spectacular demonstration, how about this one? How about Jesus allowing himself to die predicting beforehand that he would and predicting that he would raise himself from the dead and then doing it. That gives me confidence. Job grieved and he worshiped, but his ultimate hope is in these three anchors, a living redeemer, a future kingdom, and a personal resurrection by this living redeemer into this future kingdom. And what about that future kingdom? You know that we have something that nobody else has? We are so blessed. We have divinely inspired, objective information about what happens after death. For those who would humble themselves before Christ and repent of the sin which has so offended the the holiness of God, Christ Jesus will forgive you. He will guarantee your participation in his future kingdom. So what does the Bible say about what happens after death for those who know Christ? Let me just give you a little short list. This is not exhaustive at all. First thing, we get an immediate home in heaven as it is now. We get an immediate home in heaven. In John 14, Jesus promised that in my Father's house are many rooms, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And by the way, don't listen to our culture's view of heaven. Heaven as it is now isn't some ghostly, ethereal, spooky, cloudy place. It's a physical place that the Bible calls the third heaven. In other words, it's a place beyond the sky and beyond the stars. You get beyond that, you get to heaven. Hebrews eleven fourteen through 16 says it'll feel like home. The Bible says it'll be paradise. It's a word that means it has lush vegetation. Revelation 7, 9 tells us that heaven as it is now has trees. The Bible says that heaven as it is now has food, wine, clothing, color, light, fire, animals, music, dancing, And, by the way, the physically resurrected Jesus Christ seated on the throne of God. What else? We also get a resurrection to a perfect body. A perfect body. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that the dead in Christ will rise. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we will put on imperishable. We will put on an immortal body. 1 John 3 verse 2 says we will be like Christ because we will see him as he is. That when we see Christ, instantly we are as he is. What else do we get? We get a promise that we'll never be away from Christ. We'll never be away from Christ from the moment of our deaths and from the moment of our future resurrection. 
1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, We will always be with the Lord. Now, how could we illustrate that? We have this thing right now that we do call prayer. It is long-distance communication with God. In heaven, we just call it a conversation. What else? We get a family reunion. A family reunion. Hebrews 12 says that heaven contains a cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses, that all who have died in their faith in Christ are together. And someday you will be reunited with all those that have loved Christ on this earth And you'll have eternity to get to know all of them from every age. Every saint from the Bible as well. What else do we get? You'll return to the earth with the Lord. Because remember, we will always be with the Lord. So wherever he goes, that's where we're going. Revelation 19 pictures all the saints of all the ages dressed in heaven for a formal worship time, dressed in fine linen, bright and pure. Verse 8 says that. And right after this, immediately following... Revelation 19 pictures Jesus in heaven, mounting a white horse, readying himself to come take the earth back. And who is it that's with him? Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in, get this, fine linen, white and pure. They were following him on white horses. Who is that? That's you. What else do we get? We get to rule with Christ. Revelation 20 verse 4 says that we'll reign along Christ for a thousand years just as God originally intended Adam to be a vice regent on the earth. That plan will come to fruition through us. What else do we get? We get to experience the glories of a thousand year age of Christ's rule. On Sunday nights, we've been looking in thorough detail at what this, what we call the millennial kingdom looks like. Just to summarize from the book of Isaiah alone, Christ is reigning on earth. We're reigning with him. The greatest economy in the history of mankind, a refurbished and remodeled city of Jerusalem is the capital of the world, a changed topography on the earth, vineyards and orchards and farmlands beyond belief, prosperity for all, a complete lack of war, a complete lack of crime, vast wealth from every nation on earth being brought to Jerusalem. And that's just the warm-up kingdom. I mean, if we could put it in human terms, God's going to take a thousand years just to crack his knuckles and say, watch this. That's amazing. What else do we get? We get to be witness to the final eradication of evil. The final eradication of all evil, the vindication of God. Revelation 20 says that at the end of the age, the heavens and the earth will melt away and that a great white throne of judgment will be the central feature of everything. And at that judgment will appear all the dead of all the ages who ever refused the grace of God and salvation. And they will be judged according to every wicked deed, every wicked thought, every wicked word that they've ever had. And they will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Sin will be no more. All evil will be gone. Every believer in Jesus Christ will be looking around saying, is it over? Is it done? It's finished. There is no more wickedness. What else? You get to be witness to the creation of new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. I mean, I like watching my kids build Lego models. This is going to be phenomenal. All the earth, not just part of it, all of the earth now, like the Garden of Eden as originally intended, filled with the glories and the pleasures and the delights of God, filled with resurrected saints everywhere. What else do we get? We get the eradication of every single pain Every pain. Do you remember the first immunization you got when you were six months old? 
Nope. Put that in the hand of God because that's how you'll feel about every pain you have ever experienced on this earth. Revelation 22 says that in this age there will be nothing accursed. Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So how do we receive God's help for grief? Let's tie it all up in a bow. We grieve our loss. We worship our sovereign God, putting ourselves in our low place and putting him in his high exalted place. And thus we meet two spiritual goals in the midst of tragedy, respond in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and run to God and not away from him. And so then we anchor our hope with these three anchors, a living redeemer, a future kingdom, a personal resurrection. And we believe and hope in the divinely inspired objective information that we have about life after death for the believer in Christ, an immediate home in heaven as it is now, resurrection to a perfect body. We're never away from Christ. A family reunion. We'll return to the earth with Christ. We'll rule with Christ. The glories of a thousand year reign. We'll witness the final eradication of all evil. We'll witness the creation of new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem and the final eradication of all and every single pain. I don't know about you, but that helps me. We often say that we live together as a local church in order to walk each other home, to walk each other to our future home. And last Sunday night, we quite literally got to walk Jane home. The last sermon she heard was about the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the last song she sang on this earth, the song that was ringing in her heart, even as she met her Savior face to face, the song we began our service with this morning, the last words she sang on this earth with longing eyes, we look for you, for home is at your side. And she is home. We don't need to save her seat anymore. I think she would find that funny. If we saw what she has now, she would say, you can keep your little green chair I'm going to be where I am. Listen, I'm not a great communicator. I do my best. I'm not a great communicator. And just in case that I have accidentally communicated to you that this hope and that this destiny is for all human beings, may I be clear that it is not. It is not. Only those who have humbled themselves and said, I have nothing to offer you, God. I have only sin. I have only degradation. I have sinned against you. I am a liar. I am a cheat. I am an adulterer. I am sexually immoral. I am a murderer. I am all of these things that condemn me. And I acknowledge that the book of James says that if I have committed one sin against you, I have broken every one of your laws. And I must come before you as as Job did, broken, falling on the ground with zero to give God because I have zero that he wants. What would you do as a righteous judge with somebody that has rebelled against every law and every rule that has ever been put in place for all of time? Because that's what the Bible says you have done. The Bible says that there is no one who does good, no one who seeks after God, no one who is righteous, no one who looks for him. What would you do? A righteous judge would condemn that person. Can you undo any sin you've ever done by doing something good to replace it? You can't. You cannot do that. 
In other words, every sin that you've ever committed, every offense, every act of rebellion goes on into eternity. So how therefore should God deal with you? Your punishment must therefore go on into eternity. God will not annihilate you. You are made in the image of God. You are immortal. Do you understand that? That in 10 billion years, every person in this room will still be alive. Every person who has ever lived is still existing. And they are either with the Lord or they are against him. And so please do not misunderstand me that all of these glorious hopes and promises, they are not for all of humanity. They're only for those that would receive Jesus Christ as their savior. And you can take that from the words of Christ himself. He said that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one will come to the Father except through me. Because it is this same Jesus that we see seated on the great white throne in Revelation 20, opening the books of the horrific lives of all who have ever rebelled against him, reading the charges and pronouncing them guilty and casting them bodily into the lake of fire. Do not misunderstand. Do not take this glorious opportunity for granted. I've preached a lot of memorial services and in the Midwest where I've spent a lot of my lifetime, we have a practice of taking the body of the deceased person and putting them in the casket open right in front of everybody. It is the world's greatest sermon illustration because all I have to do is say, every one of you here, that's going to be you. Not one of you here will escape. Not one. Not me, not my family, not anybody. There's only one escape, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that cross which paid for my sin and for yours, but you have to ask. You have to ask. And so I hope and I pray that none of you misunderstand that these promises, these hopes that we have in our grief, this is not for everybody. This is for those who know Christ. And for those who do know Christ, isn't it great that God is sovereign? And that when Jane went home, it was exactly at the moment that he had ordained and that at that moment, her heart was quite literally filled up with the word of God and filled up with songs about the kingdom and that the last thing she got to do on this earth was to embrace a little baby and to say goodbye and then to go home. I mean, I couldn't orchestrate it better. I couldn't orchestrate it better. Last week, a week ago today, I said, you might not have 10 more minutes to live. I'm going to start saying that more because you should get nervous when I say that. It's true. It is true. Some of you may not be alive one week from today. Don't let the opportunity pass, okay? All right. Our Father, we come to you now. Thankful. Thankful for Christ and the provision that he has given to us. And we would pray for a man or a woman or a child who even now is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit to know that their sin has overwhelmed them and that they have no salvation apart from Christ. Let the Holy Spirit blow and breathe upon their hearts right now to receive Christ as our dear sister Jane did so many years ago, convicted of her sin just after hearing just a few gospel messages. She immediately 
so quickly believed and we're thankful for that Lord we're thankful for the life that she led and Lord we would come to you now thanking you that Jane's salvation has been secured it's it's finished it's been consummated she is home with you always to be with the Lord but that question is still up in the air for some of us and so Lord I pray as I'm sure Jane would want us to that not one would miss heaven not one of us here not one hearing this message Lord we pray for all those who love her and who have cherished her for many years we hurt we grieve she is so special and so delightful and you have the right to take her for yourself and you have and we honor you for that right the Lord gives the Lord takes away and we bless your name but we still miss her we pray for her family Lord we pray for Daryl and for Kelly and for Marissa, for Marvin, for their whole family, that they would cherish Christ during this time and that they would believe and love you as you have loved them. We pray for our church family, Lord. It's going to be a while before we don't see that particular seat as Jane's seat. And so we grieve and we hurt and we pray for your help and we pray for your comfort. But we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ where he literally went to death and conquered it first and turns around as it were and says, I did it and I'll do it for you. And so we look forward to that day of our own home going that the Bible says is like going home. It's like moving out of a tent and into your real house. It's like going to your father's house. It's like going on a journey and arriving home. So many pictures the Bible gives. Would you give conviction to those who do not know you? Bring them to Christ today. And would you bring comfort to those who do? We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.